part of this. I've learned a lot, and there's a lot to process. Um, I first traveled to Indonesia in 2009 as a loose fellow. Um, I was associated with Gajamada University in Yogyakarta. And when I uh, returned to ASU, um, we ended up getting a grant. And I was working for the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict. And they said, great, you've been to Southeast Asia. You can work on the grant, and you know, we'll send you back. And so, didn't need to turn that on. So, um, I've been able to go back for three long research days after that, and uh, it's been interesting about every two years to see how the climate changes. Um, and so, to, but to situate my talk, I'd like to begin by giving a very brief overview of Indonesia, and then draw attention to some historical and uh, national specificities. Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world, so <laughs> it's important to know about Indonesia. Um, it is an archipelago nation comprised of more than 17,000 islands, uh, 900 of those or more with permanent residents, uh, hundreds of languages, uh, with Bahasa Indonesia adopted as uh, the official language, the standardized Malay, and um, it's the most populous Muslim-majority country in the world with more than 250,000 million citizens, 87% of whom are Muslim. Half of them live in Java, um, and another 15% on Sumatra, so there's a lot of concentration. Um, and historically, Java, of course, was the colonized space and then has become uh, a, a neo-colonial um, uh, power within the larger um, community. Um, so colonized by the Portuguese, the British, the Dutch, the Spanish very briefly in the 16th and 17th century on a few islands in the Moluccas, occupied by the Japanese during World War II. It's a country of many different peoples, languages, traditions, and encounters, um, all encompassed by this project of 20th century nation building. It's the country where Ben Anderson conceived his Imagined Communities Project, the book emerging as Jihira wrote, from the crucible of Indonesian history. Um, and of course he wrote, uh, he also got himself kicked out of Indonesia and couldn't go back for many years. Um, scholars analyzing contemporary sectarianism, and I promise I will trouble that uh, term, often reference back to the Padre War of the 19th century as the first contest between uh, Wahhabi and local Islam in Indonesia. And the Padre War took place in West Sumatra and was waged by hardline uh, reformer Tuanko Imam Bondrel and his followers, among them three recent hajis who could not reconcile the local adat or custom um, of the Menang Kabao with Islamic teachings. When was the war again? Uh, the Padre. Yeah, when was it? When was the war? Yeah. Uh, late 19th century. Uh, early 19th century. Sorry. Um, and so the Menang Kabao were, for the most part, conservative Muslims. Um, they were observant, um, but they were also matrilineal. And the tensions coalesced around issues of inheritance. Uh, the, in Menang Kabao culture, property passes from mother to daughter. It's the largest matrilineal society in the world. And as this challenge from Imam Bajal, and his followers mobilized into a movement, the Padre movement, and then into full armed conflict. Um, 
it threatened the extant power assemblages um, among the Benin Cabal. And because of this threat, they aligned with the Dutch, with the colonizers, which makes for kind of an interesting um, counterintuitive alliance. So Imam Boji was he was Menenkabawas were his followers, uh, but they were disrupting the local power structures, and so the elite aligned themselves with the Dutch, at least for a period of time, and the war breaks out. Um, so it doesn't last. The Menenkabau decide they would rather throw their lot in with the nationalists, who have, you know, by that point softened their stance somewhat. Um, but they are left with this problem of compliance with Islamic family law. The Menenkabau were sensitive to the criticism that they were not satisfactory Muslims. And one presumes not too anxious to experience a repeat of the violence that was unleashed. They endeavored to comply with the rules of inheritance in Islam while maintaining the customary law that was essential to the maintenance of their social structure. So they developed the concept of high and low inheritance. So high, high inheritance rules are drawn from adab, their customary uh, law. Uh, property and land are inherited by daughters. It's still, still this way. While low inheritance, what the father earns, is administered through Islamic law. In this way, they maintain their customs, their adab, and now they're compelled, though, to create a narrative about themselves that satisfies their Muslim credibility and their customary law. And here, I'd like to think with Alan Feldman, who wrote so compellingly about formations of violence in his ethnographic work on Northern Ireland during what is euphemistically termed the, the Troubles. Feldman argues, in a political culture, the self that narrates speaks from a position of having been narrated and edited by others, by political institutions, by concepts of political causality, and possibly by violence. And he continues, the narrator writes himself into an oral history because the narrator has already been written and subjected to powerful inscriptions. And I think this struggling to define uh, oneself, to write oneself, even as and more likely explicitly because one is being narrated and edited by others offers a different conceptual framework to think about what we've been you know, trying to find a term for. I think this is a different way to look at it. Um, so this is just the briefest of background on the Padre War so that we can have that reference point. Um, and if you're interested, Jeff Hadler has an in-depth article about the Padre War, and he uses a numismatic entry point to think about the way Imam Bojol uh, has been recuperated and is a national hero, a local indigenous, you know, 5,000 rupiah note. Uh, this was issued in 2001, so he has, he's a hero now among the Benin Cabal <laughs> as a nationalist. Um, so, and then in 1942, the Japanese are occupying Indonesia, and Sukarno and Muhammad Hatta first introduced the idea of Panchasila for the five principles. Um, and when the principles were adopted into the Constitution in 1945, as part of the nationalism project for the nascent nation state, the number one guiding principle, Panchasila, um, becomes is listed as belief in one God, Tauhid, 
uh, followed by just and civilized humanity, Indonesian unity, democracy under the wise guidance of representative consultation, and social justice for all the peoples of Indonesia. Now, this sounds fairly benign, uh, but in fact, it's a, it's a way to structure power, it's a negotiation. Um, and this was not the original order that Sukarno had in mind, but he's brokering deals and he's creating difference because um, you know, he's coalescing power. So um, those who were buying for an Islamic rather than a secular state were unhappy because he pulls the language out at the last minute um, concerning Sharia and um, you know goes forward with it. So Panchasila, uh, under Sukarno, you know, it's taught the employees uh, working for the state are exposed to Panchasila, it's taught in the schools, but it's more as a, you know, light philosophic underpinning of the new country. It's part of the nationalism project. Um, but in 65, when Suharto comes to power, this changes it. You know, there's just a uh, a scandal after the murder of the six generals. It's blamed on Sukarno, and this is history, you guys know this, but um, this almost immediately for Suharto, he begins animating and directing violence towards the leftists. And although this is framed as a communist purge, I think it's important, and I think Indonesians are, are really uh, examining this, um, these Indonesians were both religious, many of them, and drawn to leftist politics. But the way it gets framed is that they can't occupy both spaces. And so if you were connected to the Communist Party, if you were on a list that said you were a leftist, you were killed. And this killing just continues and continues till we have half a million, a million dead. And this was Muslims killing Muslims. We know this. This was Catholics killing other Catholics. This was Protestants killing suspect Protestants. Um, and those who are doing the killing move their religious brethren into the category of the killable. And they do this through three beliefs, that the person was somehow affiliated with PKI or with leftist thought, and then that leftist thought meant that one is either an atheist or a bad Muslim or a bad Catholic or a bad Protestant. They get excised out of that acceptable category and that one had to be properly religious or you were subject to being killed. And in Suharto's new order, this consciousness becomes then more visible, becomes um, weaponized in a way. Um, and you can see this in Joshua Oppenheimer's uh, documentaries, which are really um, creating some interesting spaces in Indonesia for talking about, for looking back at this period and talking about the act of killing and the look of silence. Um, we see family members of those killed creating a counter-narrative. When I was at Gajamada last, they actually had a whole session, which I thought was very brave of them, because you're not supposed to <laughs> really show the film and it's not something the government wants to talk about, but they did open a session, and I sat in a room with 60 people, and 30 of the people in the room had, were from families that were, had participated, that were perpetrators, 
and the other 30 came from families where they had had loved ones killed. And to be in that space and to hear them finally be able to express the, the inexpressible. This has been suppressed for so many decades in Indonesia. Um, but the effects are still felt. People are still living with this. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what opens up. And if the government doesn't give people space to talk about this, I think we're going to see repercussions. People have to go somewhere with with some of these feelings. There are people who are, uh, have lived their whole life under the um, power structure that was created because if you came from a family that was associated with the communists, even if you were not killed, you were tainted. And it meant it, meant it affected you at school, it meant it affected you in the workplace, there were certain jobs you couldn't do. Um, and so this has had generational implications. Um, and, um, and of course, if you're from a family of the, that's been a perpetrator, then there's that residual guilt, or not, or you know, in some cases not. So, um, this, the Panchasila, of course, has made its way into material culture. You can still find faded concrete markers at the entrance to, any, to many villages, but um, again, that's, once Suharto left power, then that's faded. Um, he has also, uh, he added religion to the national identity cards. Um, and so the government recognizes five, then recognized five religions in Indonesia, Islam, Christianity, Catholicism, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And I think it's interesting that um, Christianity and Catholicism are split in that way, um, because that suggests something. And, um, Today, Confucianism has been added. But that obviously leaves those practicing indigenous religions, as well as Jews, Sikhs, Baha'i, and atheists in a non-representative or false category. And it creates problems for Shia, uh, of course. And each religion has to create a statement of belief that re references one god. It's one of the first questions that people ask. I find when I travel to Indonesia, that's one of the first questions I'm always asked what religion are you? What do you practice? You know, that's, that's just part and parcel of polite conversation. And one must identify within the stated categories to obtain a birth certificate, to go to school, to marry, to be buried in a public cemetery. There's a recent article by a, um, on the Baha'i um, coming out of Jogja and saying how the difficulties presented um, when you don't have a place to put your identity and so what do you do? Do you just collapse into another category? Um, some Jews in um, Indonesia will mark H, and they tell themselves, well, t I'm marking Hebrew. And that's the way they negotiate it with themselves, because you have to mark it. If you don't mark it, you don't exist. You can't navigate the system. Um, but it creates a problem, as I said, for the Shia as well, because you have to choose that category, right? So you choose Muslim, but then you're being told, but you're not. You're Ahmadiyya, well, but you're not a Muslim. So where do you go? What do you, what do you put on your identity card? Um, and so the other thing I wanted to talk about were the two Islamic organizations, the two main large Islamic organizations in Indonesia, and the way that creates divides. 
The first, Muhammadiyah, is a reformist, modernist movement founded in 1912. It has about 29 million members, runs mosques, it runs schools, hospitals, clinics, scouting programs. It becomes your social identity. And uh, they tend to be urban. They issue uh, grave visitation, so you would never find someone who belongs to Muhammadiyah going and putting flowers and doing hull um, during Ramadan. Um, that's very well understood. No, that, that belongs to Anu. And Anu was founded in 1926 in reaction, again, um, defining itself against, you know, rather than or just organic, it, it becomes a project of having to say, oh, I, now I need to define who I am because this group has defined who they are and how things are supposed to be. No, we're different. So uh, Anu is this reaction to the modernist movement and to Muhammadiyah. They're traditionalist. Um, they have 40 million members. They're the largest uh, Muslim organization in Indonesia, but I think also in the world. Um, they are rural, uh, kampung-oriented. Uh, uh, and of course, they do do the great visitations. That's part and parcel. Um, of who they are, um, and um, so they have those two groups, and one um, identified against the other. And then there's also the influential um, Hadrami diaspora community within Indonesia, and it itself has this wide continuum of iterations, though it derives from the Sufi Biawale um, Tarika stream. And um, our research team has followed two um, of the sheikhs. We followed Habib Sheikh, and Habib Sheikh is uh, charismatic. Uh, he runs shalawat. Uh, he attracts the Anu crowd. They, he just has grown and grown and grown. From eight years ago, when I started to go see um, him do the shalawat, you get these you know, you get small groups, maybe 100, 200 people. Now thousands and thousands of people will show up, and they have everyone dresses in white. Um, so you have this, you know, visually it's very dramatic, um, and people stay for hours and hours. And you, villages that you think you could never find or find your way home from, and the local mosque will uh, provide food. There are often partners within the local communities. You know, the mayor might sponsor it, local businessmen. And so everyone's fed, they stay, people stay for hours and hours and hours. And uh, his message is very much one of uh, inclusiveness, tolerance. Um, he is all about enjoying what is right. He's, uh, he's very on the roof. Um, and then you have, of course, Habib Rizik, who is the intellectual um, architect of from uh, Pambala Islam, of FPI, and uh, he's absolutely on the other end of the spectrum, a very hardliner. Um, they both derive from the same stream, but he's all about uh, forbid what is wrong, al-Munkar, and he um, gives sort of a, he gives authority, um, intellectual, spiritual authority to FPI, and FPI are I would describe as gangsters. We've um, spent time, I revisited them at their headquarters in Jakarta, and um, 
in Indonesia, they, you know, they're preman, they're gangsters uh, of a sort. They like to go during Ramadan and um, wield clubs, you know, bamboo, and someone is serving food uh, during the day in Ramadan. They will come in and break up the restaurant. They beat people up. Um, when Irshad Manji was invited to um, to come to Gajamada, they made death threats. They came and you know came in and intimidated the, the faculty at the center. Um, and there's a breakdown with the support of the um, local police because the professor from the center took photographs. And he went to the police and said, you know, we've been threatened. We've had, um, you know, very nasty messages. People have been beaten up. And the police did nothing. And so that is because, in some way, someone further up the chain supports <laughs> Javier Ruzic and supports that kind of uh, behavior. They also, um, you know, it's sort of soft power. It's, it's dispersed from the from the source. Um, so anyway, um, that's interesting. And then in 1998, you have the um, Banyuwangi murders. So during the months after Suharto leaves power, you have um, hundreds of people killed in East Java. And this you know, is another one of these manifestations. These are clerics who are affiliated with Anu, the more rural um, iteration. Uh, of Islam that you see in Indonesia, um, in the Kampung, and they were accused of practicing black magic. And it was widely believed this was a politically instigated campaign, again using local soft power to accomplish um, politically uh, expedient agendas. And this in particular was to destabilize Gustur's presidency and Anu political power. Um, uh, when Lady Gaga came to Jakarta, that was another, well, she ended up canceling, but that was another um, manifestation. Yeah, and, and Indonesians <coughs> love Lady Gaga. Many Indonesians <laughs> love Lady Gaga. And she was had a sold-out show in Jakarta, but FPI, uh, you know, really threatened to kill people, and in the end, they, she pulled out. She said she didn't, uh, you know, didn't want people to get hurt. Um, so these are these um, these are these uh, moral panics or social dramas that um, I think you know FPE and other groups like them like to create. Um, so again, like the Irshan Manji, Lady Gaga, Valentine's Day, they get whipped up about Valentine's Day. They whipped whipped up about people not fasting um, and uh, get nasty. Um, so they're. And the reason I wanted to draw attention to that is because there you have two sheikhs who both come out of the same Sufi stream, you know, both Hadrami, but they just couldn't be further apart. So what do we mean when? So we're going to talk about sectarianism, but you know these divisions are so um, so hard to pin down. They're really hard to pin down because. There's often, of course, more. I mean, those two men you would think would would uh, they fed from the same source in many ways, and yet they end up at opposite ends of the spectrum, and their followers 
as well, navigate, you know, gravitate to one end or the other. So, um, then in 2012, you have um, the MUI, the um, local ulama council of the Indonesian, um, the main ulama council, um, issued a fatwa that uh, proclaimed that the Shia were a deviant sect. Um, so I mean, this happened, you know, I had been there and then I <laughs> left and I came back and this had been issued. And um, there was a lot of signage up, there was a lot of anti, uh, anti-Ahmadiyya. Um, now it's been softened. Originally it said um, al-Shia. And then they softened it and said, well, okay, just certain sects, but the Ahmadiyya. And um, there have been a number of incidents because of course this gives permission to people to um, you know, burn down mosques, to not allow people to pray even outside the mosques. And um, also, the, again, with the civil side of it, it gives the police a license to hem and haw and to say, well, you know, I mean, they'll show up. Um, they'll say things like, well, um, I was at the location at the very beginning when the incident took place. He said he tried to mediate between the two parties. Um, but the presence of, of Ahmadiyya has been rejected some years ago in this area. And this isn't really a mosque. This is a house. And that's why it can't be used for Friday prayers. Residents in this neighborhood you know, have said we don't want Ahmadiyya to pray together there, but they can come to our community mosque, and that would be OK. And when the Ahmadis refuse, the police officer says, well, there's really nothing I can do. You know, I don't want anyone to get hurt, so you should just disperse and just go on your way, right? So um, I think when we look at the way um, these social dramas or moral panics resolve, it gives us some hints. I mean, sometimes it's successfully, right? There's a civil... Um, society does what it's supposed to do. Uh, if the police come in and say, you know, if they, if they will take, take the side of the minority group, then you, things resolve successfully, but often they don't. And that creates authority for the groups to continue their behaviors and to escalate the behaviors. So um, I think I'll leave it there, and uh, thank you.